thank you very much, uh, Catherine, for that lovely introduction, and thank you all for coming, and to the organisers for the invitation to speak to you today, uh, for coming out on this beautiful Sunday afternoon to indulge me while I wax for a little while about two topics that uh, I have bored people stupid about over the years. Um, uh, and it's delightful to see so many people here today who are enthused about the idea of me boring them silly for an hour about unconscious bias. Two, two topics that I have spent a lot of time both working on in my professional life but also thinking about in my personal life as well. Gender diversity and equality, although diversity more broadly than gender as well. Uh, and unconscious thinking processes. We all have an unconscious brain, as you're about to find out, and it's notoriously difficult to understand and to control. And so the title of this talk, Sexism Without Sexists, I thought initially should probably have a question mark at the end of it. Can we have sexism without sexists? Where does sexism reside? Does it reside in the conscious brain or in the unconscious brain? I don't know that there's a clear answer, and you certainly, if you want a clear, simple answer, you don't ask an academic, that's for sure. <laughs> but uh, hopefully we'll see if we can wade through some of the, uh, some of the uh, rocky ground and see if we can come to any clearer sense of whether or not we can have sexism without sexists and whether or not, if it can exist, that is what unconscious bias is. So... I think definitional rabbit holes aside, because there are probably many ways to define sexism, sexism, really at the heart of this question is the idea that it might be possible to be ardently egalitarian, to espouse deeply egalitarian, gender egalitarian views, but to still have the occasional impure sexist thought. <laughs> is that what's going on when we talk about unconscious bias? We may believe that we're quite progressive and enlightened and left-leaning or high-minded or well-educated and we're far too sophisticated for a silly thing like sexism or bias. But in fact, we know through such wonderful wealth of cognitive science research that we often actually don't know what's going on in our brains and what we think we're thinking is not actually what we're thinking. We are, of course, talking about unconscious biases, uh, as Catherine described in her introduction. It has become such a buzzword in organisations over the last four or five years, and I, I work in that space and hear the term quite a lot. I do a lot of education for leaders around unconscious bias. And when, it has now kind of hopped the fence, and it's jumped into public discourse more broadly. It's, it's not actually as well understood a term as it should be. And I guess that's what's interesting about the question in, inherent in the title of this talk is, is unconscious bias sexism without sexists? Hopefully we'll see. The other way of understanding unconscious bias is that it's something that overtly sexist people do to plead innocence or to defend themselves against an accusation of sexism. You say, no, but I'm not sexist. Some of my best friends are women. Or the other wonderful one, which we often get when we talk about unconscious bias is, well, if that's the case, it's not me, it's my brain. My brain made me do it. I'm not sexist, my brain made me do it. So we do, I, do, I do experience this right. When you talk to senior leaders about gender diversity in their organisation and they are wholeheartedly in support of it, they're very enthusiastic, they've got daughters, most likely, and then you look at their last ten hires and you go, but eight of them were men. Is that what we mean when we talk about unconscious bias? To answer this question, or to at least untease, pick apart and tease apart some of the key ideas in this question, we have to tell a tale of two brains. You all have two brains each. So for all of you who are in the room today, there are twice as many brains. This sounds quite odd, but it means a couple of really important things. This idea of thinking happening at two 
very distinct levels in the brain is not a new one, and it's quite, quite the, the dominant view of cognitive architecture these days, this dual process idea of thinking. And thinking can happen at a conscious level and an unconscious level. And for those of you who've, uh, who've had the pleasure of reading Daniel Kahneman's wonderful book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he refers to these two brains as system one and system two. This is actually system two, which we're going to talk about first because it's not all that interesting, right? So we're going to get it out of the way. This system two brain is your conscious brain. This is what we think of when we think about thinking. It's conscious. You have conscious awareness of it. If I ask you what are you thinking, you can tell me, hopefully. You may not wish to, but you can. It is logical. It requires truth value validation on what goes on in there. It doesn't tend to think things that are contradicted by external reality. It is reflective. You can think about what you're thinking in this brain. It is controlled. You can direct its attention to something. You can purposefully choose to think about something, although it's sometimes trickier than it, than it might seem. It's explicit. And this is your system two brain. Is this where sexism lives? Or does it live, excuse me, in system one? System one is your unconscious brain, and it's quite a different matter altogether. It, it doesn't really actually even do thinking in the proper sense of the word. It is unconscious, and, and, and we always have this wonderful paradox when we talk to leaders about unconscious bias, or anybody about unconscious bias, and we say, well, you know, you have all of these biases, the things that go on in your brain that make decision-making suboptimal. And they go, yes, I believe you. It sounds compelling, and I believe the evidence. I'm an I'm a, a obje objective, logical, evidence-based person. I totally believe you. But it wouldn't happen to me because I'm not sexist. <laughs> this brain is unconscious, and the, the unconscious really means that. You don't have conscious awareness of what's going on in here. You actually don't. I can tell you that this happens, and you can nod and say yes. That's your conscious brain nodding and saying yes, okay? What's going on in here is inaccessible for the most part to, uh, to conscious awareness. This unconscious brain is where intuitions, gut reactions, snap judgments, hunches live, okay? It's an intuitive brain. It doesn't really deal in facts or details or depth or validation. It's reflexive, so your fight and flight response lives in this brain. It's automatic. It happens outside of your control. You can't stop it from occurring. By the time you become consciously aware of it, it's already happened. It's implicit is the other word we often hear thought, talked about. And if any of you have heard of something called the implicit association test, it's how we measure unconscious thinking. So we have this, this tale of two brains. Which brain does sexism live in? This unconscious brain doesn't fact check, doesn't validate, doesn't think very deeply. It filters out incongruous details. It just looks for patterns, and it matches them against a neuronal network that it has developed patterns for. This brain simply lights up, if you stick it in a machine, to learned patterns that it sees in its environment. This brain chooses whether or not to agree with them. This brain looks at that information and says, is that right? Is it even accurate? Where could I find out more information about this? Is it fair? Do I agree with it? So which brain does sexism live in? And this is why we get kind of get stuck in this definitional rabbit hole. So let's not, let's not obsess too much about which, which brain sexism lives in. But these two brains do very different things. They don't operate in the same kind of way. They don't process information in the same way. They don't even notice the same things. 
Some of you may already have noticed that there's a kind of really serious implication here in having two thinking systems that can do different things at the same time. And of course that means that the content of one of these brains may be different to the content of the other brain. Is this our first clue to this idea of, I'm not sexist, but, or some of my best friends are women? That what I believe consciously may not be what's going on at this unconscious brain level. This brain, importantly, doesn't fact-check. It doesn't care whether things are correct. It just fires in response to a stimuli in its environment. Importantly, this brain, this unconscious brain, doesn't have intentions. It can't form opinions. It doesn't have values. It has no intentionality at all. It's just sparking off in response to things that it sees. So I don't know whether we're getting to something called sexism yet. Your conscious brain considers this information, decides whether I agree with it or not. I notice mum does most of the housework. Is that just a descriptive norm, as in it's what happens? Or is it a prescriptive norm, as in I also believe that that's, that's the right order, that's the way life should be. Women should be doing all of the housework because they're naturally better at it or something, right? But importantly, this conscious brain only does that when it has time and space. And time and space is finite in the conscious brain. It processes information very deeply. It pays a lot of attention. So it can only do one thing at a time, and it does it quite slowly. So this brain has a very limited capacity. This brain, on the other hand, can, can perform hundreds of mental operations at the same time very rapidly because it doesn't have to deal in details. The implication is that this brain does so much more of our thinking work, and it also tends to get to the answer much quicker than our conscious brain. So. This brain may be passionate about gender equality. Think of this as my brain. I'm very passionate about gender equality, both personally and, and in terms of what I do for a living. Second generation feminist, etc. So this brain, my brain, is very passionate about gender equality. The other brain I have, however, <laughs> goes, ugh, when a woman gets all assertive and uppity, okay? <laughs> so whilst one brain, my conscious brain, might be ardently egalitarian, my unconscious brain is just firing off in response to these well-worn, commonly populated norms, conventions, patterns, expectations, gender roles and stereotypes that it has soaked up. And it has soaked them up because it's what your bra this brain has been marinating in. We are marinating in a gendered, perhaps patriarchal, social system. So that's what this brain soaks up. This brain gets to decide whether that's fair or reasonable or correct or the way the world should be. So is unconscious bias just a comfortable excuse then? I don't know, we're not, we're not quite there at an answer yet. This brain may believe that women are as competent as men in, in leadership, for example. This brain thinks competence looks more like a tall man. <laughs> so this brain believes that competence and height are correlated, even though we know that they're not. Most CEOs are quite a lot taller than the average person. So there's something about height and capability that appeals to this brain that isn't based in fact, okay? The problem, of course, is that this brain does all of this really quickly. This brain is usually busy doing something else and it has limited capacity. <coughs> We're pretty lazy thinkers. This brain goes off first and it gets to the answer. This brain doesn't really have time to contradict or think or dispute or look for the evidence. So let's, let's look a little bit more about what gets into this brain. Why is the stuff that's in there in there? This unconscious thinking brain 
is just a network of neural associations that form as you marinate in this society with all of its meanings and its values and its norms and its institutions and conventions and stereotypes. And it mops them up. And it creates little neural associations for them. It does about 90% of your thinking work, which is really quite a lot. So what you're consciously aware of thinking is literally the tip of the iceberg compared to what else is going on. It has a very large capacity because it doesn't have to accommodate a great deal of detail. It doesn't go very deep, doesn't look at the information very carefully. It's incredibly efficient as a result. It gets to the answer first. And it's where our fight or flight ability comes from. We wouldn't be able to react like that if we didn't have this brain. And it's just a network of patterns and associations. And as we'll see, this, is, this becomes problematic. The brain is almost, this brain is almost addicted to patterns and associations. It loves a good pattern. It finds it very hard to see anything outside of the things it has developed patterns for. The downside of all of this efficiency and this ability to notice so much is that this brain tends to make a lot of mistakes. It's kind of the speed over accuracy trade-off. Your conscious brain goes for accuracy, your unconscious brain goes for speed. Okay. This kind of rapid pattern matching thinking system is incredibly useful for day-to-day -day routines. If you see a fast-moving object in your peripheral vision, I would strongly recommend that you listen to what this brain is saying <laughs> and duck. Okay. I wouldn't recommend that you stop for a moment to think about the relative pros and cons of ducking, okay? So this brain has its uses. But for more complicated things, and particularly when both personally and socially and organisationally, we are trying to change something, these old autopilot habits tend to lead us to the wrong answer. They tend to cause a lot of errors. And the errors are pretty fascinating to psychologists because we love studying when the brain goes wrong, when things don't work. There are hundreds and hundreds of well-researched types of unconscious bias, but I'm going to touch on a couple of the really, the major ones, the ones that come around most commonly. And the first is similarity bias, and this is the kind of most profound ego-based bias. Each of you is at the centre of your own little world, right? That is how we experience the world. And so most of our evaluations are self-referential. In relative to me, what do I think of this, this person, this situation? And all things being equal, we tend to prefer people the more similar they are to us. It feels validating, it feels reassuring, but it's actually also just more efficient because remember, your unconscious pattern-based brain recognises this information and processes it much more efficiently. The second of these common types of bias is not limited to impacting on our evaluations about people. It impacts our evaluations about all kinds of things. It's called confirmation bias. And this is a tendency to pay more attention to and remember and look more closely at information that confirms our expectations and overlook information that disconfirms our expectations. This tendency towards confirmatory information means that we end up not knowing what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know because we're not looking for it. Again, this happens because expected or familiar information is more attractive to this pattern-obsessed brain. It fits more easily. But it can really get in the way when you're trying to make a balanced decision. It means that we tend to see what we expect to see. We reinforce any preconceived ideas we might have, especially when we meet people and we make evaluations about people. The anchoring effect, probably the best example of the anchoring effect is first impressions. So the, with the anchoring effect, some existing ideas that I already have, 
go on to exert too much influence on my subsequent decisions. So any, any change in opinion I might have is likely to orbit around my initial opinions that doesn't tend to change very much. And first impressions is the perfect example. We meet a person, within seconds we've, we've formed a couple of key evaluations about them. No matter how much more we then go on to learn, we're very reluctant to shift our initial impression. In fact, confirmation bias kicks in over the top here and it makes us look for information that confirms our first impression when we meet someone. And finally, we have the halo effect. And the halo effect basically turns us all into saints or sinners. So if I meet you and I like something about you, I'm very likely to infer that I will like other things about you as well. So if I find that you're funny, I'm also likely to think that you're kind and generous and trustworthy and capable even though I don't have any information about you on those characteristics, okay? It works in reverse too, though. So if I meet you and I find something unpleasant about you, I'm much more likely to infer other unpleasant things about you too. So we can have this huge generalisation about a person based on the one thing that we've noticed about them and reacted to. Not surprisingly, these kinds of biases can get in the way of making sound, objective evaluations about people. So what has this got to do with sexism, I hear you say? It's really fascinating stuff, but where's the sexism? The list is endless. We could talk about these kinds of unconscious biases for a long time, but here's what happens when you combine this kind of unconscious thinking with the meanings and roles and expectations and stereotypes that we impose on men and women. This kind of thinking process operates on a first-past-the-post idea, right? On a first-past-the-post electoral system. You think of a woman, and I say to you in that wonderful Freudian way, what do you associate with women more easily? Babies or power tools? <laughs> now, your feminist egalitarian brain may wish to say, no reason why women can't use power tools. I'm a dab hand with a black and decker. Your unconscious brain, I can guarantee you, got babies first. First past the post, it was the most rapidly activated association that your unconscious brain came up with. Rewind back to the previous slide about those biases. They then kick in once this is activated and we think of women and babies. We then start to go on forming all of our other impressions and attitudes and evaluations on that basis. We seek to confirm them. Women don't want to be leaders. They're not as motivated. They don't have as much confidence. They're all going to leave and have babies. Your, your unconscious brain answers that question much more quickly and it stacks the deck so that by the time you are thinking consciously, you're not looking at all of the information. Still, you may say, okay, but that's not really sexism, is it? Probably not. So where, where, how do we apply the content here? It starts with a process called social categorization, and that's the brain's desire to put us all into boxes, which it, it does obsessively. And by it has to. We live in a very large, complex social environment where we don't know every person individually, so we can't know what they're like. So if we put them in boxes, we can kind of keep them organised. It starts off innocently enough, and the brain loves a category, none more so than a black and white dichotomous category like gender, where it perceives two obvious options and everybody is forced into those. Stereotypes, though, arise as soon as you start to categorise a person. And stereotypes give your categories diagnostic value. There's no point having the categories if they don't mean anything, if they don't tell you about what these people are going to be like. So stereotypes are the crib notes, if you like, that fill in the blanks and give us a description of what particular people tend to be like. Now, 
Stereotypes are not in and of themselves unconscious. I can ask you to name a stereotype. If I say, what's a Bondi hipster? You can all tell me, right? <laughs> We're all aware of the common social stereotypes, but the crucial factor with stereotypes is that they get activated unconsciously, instantly, whether you agree with them or not, whether your conscious brain thinks they're fair or accurate or useful, okay? They happen unconsciously. They're also incredibly seductive because they then go on to act as anchors, which we seek to confirm. Andrea is uh, a very neat, orderly, methodical, conscientious person. Uh, she's a clean freak. She doesn't socialise very much. She's uh, kind of introverted. She likes to spend her spare time at home reading books, drinking red wine and listening to the opera. Is Andrea more likely to be a librarian or a cocktail waitress? Always silence when I ask this question because <laughs> everybody knows there's a catch, right? It's a trick. And I'm, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm happy to avoid disappointing you. There is a catch, right? 90% of people will say Andrea is obviously much more likely to be a librarian, right? So if that's what you were thinking, well, you're in good company. The problem is that's not actually correct. She's more likely to be a cocktail, a cocktail waitress than a librarian because there are more of them in the world. So I ask the question, what's more likely? That's the judgment we make when we meet people except we forget the likely bit is actually a statistical question. Okay, it's not a what's your gist-based opinion, or what does she sound like? Of course she sounds like, when I described her, she sounds much more like the stereotypical librarian. But once we take base rates into account and we think, well, yeah, she's actually more likely to be a counter-stereotypical cocktail waitress than she is a librarian. And over 90% of people respond in much the same way as I'm sure many of you did. The reason this happens is because the description of Andrea triggers the stereotype of a librarian in your brain. And your unconscious brain says to your conscious brain, it's all right, you don't need to work on this. I've got the answer. You can stop thinking now. <laughs> it literally turns off your, your logic-based faculties once you hear stereotypes. They're incredibly <coughs> seductive. So we're kind of getting a little bit close to the sexism stuff now. What do we do with this tendency when it comes to making evaluations about gender, about men and women, right? When we stereotype people, it happens unconsciously, it triggers a whole set of unconscious associations that get through the post first. It also does two other things that turn out to be important. The first thing it does is that stereotypes minimise our perception of variation between people within a group. So once you're in a group, you're basically all the same. Everyone who's in that group are pretty much the same. Everyone who's in the other group, they're also the same as each other, but the two groups are vastly different. So we minimise differences between people inside a group and we maximise or exaggerate the differences between groups of people, okay? It's like goggles, distorting goggles, and we call them stereotype goggles. This is, and here's an example of how this happens with something as completely objective and arbitrary as height. You ask, uh, you ask people to think about differences in height between men and women. When you actually graph men's and women's height, this is pretty much what you find. Yep, men are on average a little bit taller than women. But there are lots of people in the middle of these two overlapping distributions where there are some women who are taller than some men and some men who are um, shorter than some women, right? So for all of these people in the middle, their gender does not distinguish... They are indistinguishable in terms of height on the basis of gender. When you ask people to intuitively draw what they think the distribution of men's and women's height is, they produced this. <laughs> so, all women are shorter 
than all men. <laughs> this is what your stereotype goggles do. Now, funnily enough, this, height's kind of a fairly amusing illustrative example, but the exact same thing happens when you ask people to talk to you about the differences between men's and women's leadership styles. Women are good at the empathic relationship building, nurturing, emotional intelligence stuff, what we call transformational leadership. Men are much better at the driving a deal and bossing people around and asserting themselves and cracking the whip, so-called transactional leadership, right? This is what people believe, that, that women lead that way and men lead this way. When you actually measure men and women on transactional and transformational leadership, you get no difference. Gender explains less than 4% of the variance in transactional versus um, transformational leadership style. And yet, I think almost every executive I deal with has this article of faith that men and women lead differently in this way. So the stereotype goggles combined with this unconscious pattern-seeking brain have the effect of magnifying our perception of differences that aren't really there to begin with. Confirmation bias kicks in, and we then start looking for information that confirms our view that there are massive differences between men and women, and, and particularly in terms of how men and women lead. So how would we form our impressions of people if we could bypass this unconscious bias process, if we couldn't see their gender to start with? And that was precisely the question and probably the best example or demonstration of how much of our perceptions of people are warped, if you like, by this unconscious magnifying process is with that of blind auditions in orchestras. And some of you, this, this research has been around in the public space for a while. Some of you may be um, aware of it. Uh, women graduate from music conservatoriums at about the same rate as men, so it's not like there's no pipeline, we can't find them, they're there. Orchestra directors were insistent that women were equally good as men as, uh, uh, in, in a technical sense. They were just as good as musicians technically. It's just that women have a different playing style and audiences seem not to like that style as much. <laughs> a perfect example of the we're not sexist but or some of my best friends are women, right? That's kind of what it sounds like. So women were very poorly represented in orchestras, under 10% uh, got through auditions. And the researchers asked a, a range of uh, different orchestras to participate in a process where the musicians would audition behind a screen so you can't see what gender the player is. Not surprisingly for the researchers at all, and probably not for the orchestra directors either, when you can't see what the gender of the person playing the instrument is, you can't actually predict what playing style they have. It turns out that playing style is an artefact of this desire to believe that men and women play an instrument differently. And also, not surprisingly, women's representation or their success past the first round of auditions shot up to the mid-40% instantaneously. So that gives you a sense of how big this factor is in terms of how distorted our sense of how different people really are can be as a result of this pattern matching brain and our desire to put people into boxes. So is it sexism? Is the unconscious bias stuff actually sexism? I still haven't answered the question and I'm an academic so don't hold your breath. <laughs> the take home out of this, this little, little um, trip around some fascinating research, is that we don't see people as they are. We like to think that we do, but we don't really. We see them as we are. We see them through our filters and our expectations and our unconscious habits and patterns. But the other thing is that none of these effects that I've spoken about are actually specific to gender at all. They happen whenever we appraise people from a group around whom we have stereotypes. 
they are not necessarily something men are always doing to women. It isn't specific to gender insofar as the same kinds of effects happen with different cultural groups as well. Stereotypes drive our perceptions of warmth and competence, which are the two crucial things, that, judgments that you make about a person when you meet them. And those dimensions are gendered. And that is the thing that turns this tendency of the brain from an efficiency that's error-ridden into something that might be getting a little bit more towards sexism, some kind of sexism. Warmth and competence are highly gendered dimensions and they're the first two things that you make assumptions about when you meet a person. Are you nice? Am I above you or are you above me in the pecking order? Do I have the power or do you have the power? And are you nice? Okay. You want to have a guess at how those two dimensions fall out when we apply them to gender? Not surprisingly, women are uniquely associated with higher levels of warmth characteristics and men are associated with higher levels of competence and assertiveness. And then, of course, we think about leadership. Where does that fall? So leadership is almost exclusively seen to be, unconsciously at least, about assertiveness and competence rather than warmth. No matter how much organisations talk about the value of EQ and this empathic new style of leadership, most people unconsciously believe leadership is around competence-based traits, the ones that we associate with men. So this is where we start to have this process resulting in sexist outcomes getting to some sexism. And this is what is happening in the brains of most people. So we measure unconscious bias as part of our work. And this is, this is what the data looks like. And as you can see, close to 80% of everyone, both men and women alike, unconsciously associate women with the warm, fuzzy uh, warmth-related traits and men with the competence-assertiveness-related traits and leadership, think manager, think male, is much more heavily associated with competence traits compared to warmth-related traits. So when we think of a manager, we just the unconscious brain sees a man, and probably a tall man too. Okay. So we have this process that is now actually turning into sexist outcomes. It's not just a cognitive artefact. Merit looks like a man. I think Catherine mentioned a lot of my talking on merit. Don't get me started. Be here all day. But uh, this is a very well-known study that came out of Yale that showed that when you ask people to appraise resumes for a position, and they're actually identical to each other with the exception of the gender of the name on them, people will rate a resume with a man's name as being more competent, more hireable, and they'll offer him a higher starting salary compared to the same resume with a woman's name on it. So competence triggers this idea of masculinity in your unconscious brain. This research was done with academics who like to think they're above all of that silly stuff, right? But this is what's going on. The pushy penalty, which is, probably doesn't require a great deal of explanation because we hear about it so much when we're told to lean in. When you lean in, you violate a stereotype of women being demure and polite and, and not too pushy. When you do that, we tend to evaluate women more negatively. We don't like it when people violate our expectations. You know, we talked about those biases and we like our expectations to be confirmed. When they're not confirmed, we tend to react negatively to it. So this is feedback from performance review feedback for a bunch of high-performing individuals in an organisation, future leaders on the fast track, hot shots, one and all. And as you can see, women are much more likely to receive negative feedback and men are much more likely to receive constructive feedback. When you actually code the words in these performance reviews, you find abrasive, brash, aggressive, pushy, applied almost exclusively to women's performance evaluations but not to men's. And a great example on the right-hand side of the slide, competence ratings for over-talking. So when men and women over-talk, 
When, when women overtalk, they're rated as less competent. When men overtalk, they're rated as more competent. Same behaviour, counter-stereotypical in one group, stereotypical in the other group, completely different evaluation. None of this is unique to gender, as I mentioned. Women do this to women and to men, the same way that men do this to men and to women. We have all internalised these norms and patterns and expectations. And they happen independently of people's conscious values. So this is, this is not a bunch of sexists participating in a bunch of studies that show sexist outcomes. There are a bunch of regular people, most of whom do not espouse sexist conscious views. This pull to sameness and pattern is incredibly strong, and it's much stronger than the pull to uniqueness or diversity. The power of these unconscious patterns is extremely difficult to get around. So we can certainly have sexist outcomes without being inherently sexist people, but that's not really the question, is it? It doesn't answer our question. If we return to our brains, our conscious and our unconscious brain, and we remember that this brain reacts to patterns, this brain gets to decide whether those patterns are fair or reasonable or desirable or useful. Which brain does sexism live in? If it lives in the unconscious brain, this pattern-forming brain, then most of us are sexist to some degree. In fact, you probably all are. If sexism only resides in the conscious brain, well, then probably a lot of you can breathe easy or pat yourselves on the back. There's no doubt that some overtly sexist people use unconscious bias as a defence. It's not a valid argument, of course, because there are many things that we can do to protect our decision-making from those kinds of unconscious bias patterns. But it's also the case that many ardently egalitarian people, many true believers in the feminist cause or the gender-equal cause, have all of this, what we might call loosely sexist stuff, going on at the unconscious level. And it leaks out into our behaviour more often than we'd like to believe. So is it unconscious bias actually sexism? Does it qualify? Can you be a little bit sexist or is it an all or nothing kind of thing? How sexist do you have to be before it becomes defining adjective that we can apply to you? Stereotypes and gendered norms reside in the brains of virtually everybody who marinades in a society that applies different value and meaning to gender. It's inescapable. In childhood, for example, as I mentioned, children still grow up, we know from the Hilda data, still grow up in households where women do the bulk of the domestic labour. That's something that your unconscious brain may notice occurring. Whether or not you agree that that's right or fair or reasonable or good or the natural order of things is a decision that happens in your conscious brain. So I guess I would argue that tempting as it is to say we're all a little bit sexist, Sexism as a, as a consciously endorsed set of beliefs about men and women and their capability and their worth and how they should define themselves is probably something that lives in your conscious brain rather than your unconscious brain. Having said that, I don't believe that we can all go home and pat ourselves on the back safe in the knowledge that we came here today, so we're definitely not sexists. <laughs> I think it's more the case that unconscious bias is a kind of Clayton sexism. It's the sexism you have when you're not really sexist. <laughs> Thank you very much.
trundle over here to catch. Trundle over here um, with your Clayton sexism. <laughs> um, thank you for that. Now, I, I would open up, um, of course, for questions um, at the two mics. I'll, I'll do my best imitation of Tony Jones. We're after uh, <laughs> questions, not, not comments. So, oh, we have one um, straight away. Let, let's Lovely. go that. Hello. Yes. That was really great. What is your advice to women, because I've searched and haven't found mm. much, that is useful and constructive and will work without alienating, alienating males when they encounter unconscious bias, to call it out or how should they best respond? Mm. It's a really great question. I deal with this question a lot in my work. So how do you deal with, deal with that pushy penalty? How do you actually show competence against a set of stereotypically masculine behaviours, which are the behaviours that are, are <coughs> rewarded at work more? Um, without incurring that, that backlash or that pushy penalty. And it's, it's a really tricky line to walk because if you call it out, well, then you're, you're being even more pushy, so, so it's not going to work. If you accuse somebody of being sexist or unconsciously biased, they do what most people do when you accuse them of something. They react against it and they blame you for the accusation. So that doesn't really work either. And if you say nothing, well, then nothing changes and you get to keep living with this throughout your professional life. So it's an extremely tricky thing. Our advice is always to focus on traits and characteristics that don't have heavily gendered overtones, that are not strongly associated with those warmth, competence factors, um, and to focus on the situation rather than the person. Because, I mean, I mean we, we, we talk all of the time in unconscious bias work around going into you know, rooms full of senior executives who are still largely um, men of a certain culture and age. Um, and by going in there with the idea that they're all, they're all secretly sexist or they're all quietly sexist or covertly sexist, not very engaging way to start a conversation. So it's really about focusing on the situation. You, get your, you arm yourself with some evidence and some facts, particularly in terms of performance review conversations that you can evidence your behaviour. Mm. Um, and, and try to avoid uh, traits and characteristics or focusing on traits and characteristics that are heavily, heavily gendered in, in terms of differentially applied to men and women. Mm. But it's tricky, there's no answer. There's no answer. Alas. <laughs> yes, I was gonna say, it's, it's the 64. I mean, you know, it depends, right? I, I, I'm pretty happy calling stuff like that out, but not everybody would be like me. And, and, you know, I get to breeze in, accuse you of being sexist and then breeze out again in the work that I do. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So if I'm in a different situation where I'm, I'm, I'm actually having to build long-term relationships with my colleagues and my leaders, you know, it's, it's not quite so easy and, and not everybody is um, brave enough or courageous enough or comfortable enough to call it out every time it happens. It's very hard. Mm. Um, well, I'll jump in. Mm, um, please do. There are a lot of organisations running unconscious bias. Yes workshops. Um, I read some research recently which tested people before and after and found mm -hmm. that in fact their biases were more embedded after the yes. unconscious bias workshop. That is true. Uh, yeah, well, indeed. <laughs> what, uh, what's going on there? I mean, I, I, suspect, I suspect we probably know you talked about it being a bit of an excuse. Oh, it's my unconscious. I can't help it. Um, but w if that's the case, what, what could workplaces be doing that's mm. a little more, you know? Yep. 
So unconscious bias training took off like wildfire in, mm. in large organisations about four or five years ago, and it's and it and it it's there's a fire that still burns brightly, and and I, I have to put my hand up and say we do a bit of that kind yeah. of thing, and do do a bit of that kind of work. Um, so there's a couple of things happening when you go in and you train people on unconscious bias, and either nothing happens afterwards, or you get a rebound effect in the opposite direction afterwards. And the first misunderstanding was that awareness was the answer to unconscious bias, and I think you know these days we have a conception of the unconscious mind that is quite different from the Freudian conception of the unconscious mind, right? So for Freud, this idea of the unconscious was if you uncover what's in your unconscious mind, you can neutralise its negative impact over your life because what was in there was hurtful or traumatic or damaging or taboo or embarrassing. In our modern sense of unconscious thinking, none of the, the stuff that's in your unconscious mind is there because of that. It's there because of efficiency. It's been automated. You don't need to waste conscious brain energy on it, right? So bringing it to conscious awareness doesn't change the mechanics of the neuronal connections in your brain overnight. You've been marinating in this, in this um, gendered... Uh, world and you have built up these connections over a very long period of time. So suddenly becoming aware of them mm. doesn't make them go away, right? They don't suddenly stop, stop firing just because you're suddenly aware. Um, so that's the first thing. Going in and talking to organisations about unconscious bias is not going to change anything. However, I will say that uh, well, and a second point there, the, the getting worse factor is a, mm. is, a, is a rebound effect, right? So we go in and we say, here's how you're all a little bit biased, be careful, um, try not to be so biased, and everybody goes away focusing on trying not to be so biased. And it's the most perfect example of the white bears that I have ever seen in my life. So the white bears was a series of famous studies done in psychology by a, a researcher called Daniel Wegner, who wanted to pr he wanted to understand why it's so hard to avoid thinking about something you don't want to think about. And he, uh, he got people into a room and he said, it's a really simple task, I just want you to not think about white bears for two minutes. <laughs> they all had a little bell on their desk and every time they thought about a white bear, they should just ting the bell. <laughs> Pandemonium within about eight <laughs> seconds. Right. It's, a, it's inordinately difficult to purposefully not think about something. It turns out that in order to not think about something, you have to constantly scan your mind to make sure that the unwanted thought isn't happening. And every time you do that, you activate the unwanted thought. <laughs> so telling people to not be biased, in fact, just makes people bias paranoid. Yeah. Right? And we have no, very little control over how these mental processes emerge, which means that it's being constantly activated and we, can't have it, we don't have a great deal of control over it, so you get this rebound effect. Mm. I will say going and educating people in organisations around unconscious bias is not a waste of time. Mm. It's a critically important level of uh, or process in the development and education of leaders around diversity and inclusion issues, that you understand that there are a range of things that impact on your decision-making over which you have very little control um, and, and about which you have very little knowledge. So for me, it sets the scene for uh, learning how to bolster the efficacy of your conscious sensor, learning how to bolster the efficacy of your rational, objective, critical thinking faculties, because they are what we use to mitigate against unconscious bias. It doesn't change. It's all about insulating your decision-making against the effects, and you have to understand and know about the effects in order to be able to do that. To do that so it's yeah. a critically important first step, but I think often the way it was done in organisations initially was that it was silver bullet, there it is, now that we all know about unconscious bias, we'll stop doing it. And, of course, that, that isn't and what that happened. Doesn't.
yeah, that yeah. doesn't happen. Um, I did want to also ask you about, um, you know, the, the whole blind auditioning, which is mm. such a fantastic mm. example. I was reading recently Bank of Queensland are now mm. covering up uh, gender when they're looking, assessing people for promotion. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if they're using it for recruitment as well, po yeah. quite possibly. Yeah. Um, is that something that you think is going to be effective? Uh, mm. Are we going to see more organisations doing that there where are, they can? I there are a few organisations doing it. Some of some of the other the big banks do it now as well. They blind resumes at the shortlist stage, so yeah. that so there is no personally identifying information on the resume. It's an interesting thing, right? And we, have, we actually have some good research in terms of how blinding works, particularly in relation to gender and your chances of selection. At the entry level, it works quite well because, in fact, you have large pools of graduates or candidates who've all got pretty much the same skills and qualifications, right? Um, and women out are out-graduating men from university, so there's plenty of women in there already. Mm -hmm. um, blinding the process does remove any of that tendency to, you know, hire yeah. people like me or pick people like me. Um, most of the decision makers are still men, so that means most of the hires are men. What we find, though, is something different when you blind processes at senior levels. Right. It doesn't actually quite work the same way. So by the time you've gone through your organisational trajectory as a woman, by the time you reach mid-level management, which is where all of the unpleasant stuff begins to happen <laughs> for you in the workplace, um, you, don't, you, you typically find it harder to get past mid-level management because there's a conscious or unconscious kind of bias going on in terms of your informal developmental opportunities. So you don't get the same stretch opportunities, all of the same informal opportunities to acquire new skills, take overseas assignments, take on a particularly tricky task, etc. And then you go on a few years not getting the same kinds of developmental opportunities as your male peers. And then it comes time to be selected for a C-suite position or a very senior position. You actually haven't had the same degree of experience as your male counterpart. Mm. So if you blind at that level, yeah. the women don't come out looking as competitive. Okay. Yeah. But it's not because they're not actually as capable, it's because they haven't had the same developmental right. trajectory as their male counterpart. So it needs to be applied in a fairly yeah. mindful kind of way. It, it, it doesn't work blanket. But certainly at entry levels where there are plenty of women and it's easier to standardise the requirements for the role, um, it absolutely works. And, and a lot of organisations are starting to try that now. One of the big uh, law firms in London did it, um, but not so much around gender. So they were the recruiting culture. from Oxbridge. Ah, that's uh, right. All of, the, all of yes. the graduates coming in were from Oxford or Cambridge and they decided to strip out the name of uh, the university where I they have, were graduating. I have read that and it's, yeah. it's pretty fascinating. That socioeconomic yep. diversity is, is, is a very strong trope in the UK. Yeah, yeah, possibly we're being a little stereotypical there, but, but it did strike <laughs> me as being a, a classic. Hey. sort of example. I'm um, not immune. <laughs> We've got another question. I was just interested to know, in light of what you said about uh, the two brains, mm. um, has there been any practices or studies using meditation or mindfulness? In <laughs> yes. <laughs> Are you a plant? <laughs> um, brilliant question. Thanks so much for asking it. Um, so we know that amongst the myriad other things that mindfulness does for you that are good, uh, mindfulness is a dimmer switch for unconscious bias. It actually turns it down. And it does that because, well, because it strengthens your conscious sensor. It enables you to have more control and awareness of what you're thinking while you're thinking in the moment, reflection, inaction, etc. So uh, we, we teach a lot of mindfulness-based techniques 
that are aimed at building what organisations are increasingly starting to call, and maybe it's the arrival of another corporate buzzword, but so-called so meta-skills, meta-thinking skills, um, that teach you how to understand and exert more conscious, mindful control over how you think. So, absolutely, stay tuned. <laughs> Fantastic. Have we got another question? Um, so I was just interested in what you were saying before about the brain liking to compartmentalise things and put things into a dichotomy, especially uh, male and female gender. So mm. I work at a university and we've consciously become a non-gender binary university. So yes. uh, you, can just, you can nominate yourself as gender X in all of our forms now, as well as being male or female. Mm -hmm. um, so my question is, do you think that stopping to think about gender as a binary construct, um, whether that opens the floor to um, uh, less biased thinking or whether it creates a whole new minefield mm -hmm. of unconscious bias? Mm -hmm. Also a really great question, thank you. Um, so I'm not aware of any rigorous body of research on it and it probably hasn't been done enough for us to really know um, what it does in terms of unconscious thinking. But my, uh, my thinking would be that a constant reminder to stop thinking about gender as binary would be a really useful way of untraining that irritating mm. habit. And you know, I, mm. I, I, I speak to leaders in workshops or people generally about gender and, you know, well, it's easy, isn't it? There's only two. And I kind of go, well, there isn't, actually. <laughs> and uh, it's... <laughs> um, a, there isn't. And, and, and B, that's just talking about physical sex. When you start talking about gender identity and sexual orientation, um, why? it's a really great illustration of the brain's desire to impose the simplest level of organisation on a, on a population of people that we possibly can. And so I, my sense is that mainstreaming that process is a really nice um, regular check that reminds us to stop thinking about it that way. So my sense is that, yes, it would be, it would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Another question? As you've been alluding to in your, in your speech, you kind of mentioned that our brains are kind of, by default, quite lazy, but that we can do things such as metacognition and bias mm. training. But obviously our brains are inherently lazy after there's only so much thinking about thinking that our brains want to do and mm -hmm. there's only so much kind of extra effort our brains want to put into doing these things. Is the answer then to kind of change the marinade that our brains default to rather than <laughs> making us do all this extra effort? <laughs> Would you agree with that assessment? So, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and Jean, I teach people not to be categorical in their thinking, but yes. Um, <laughs> so when we talk a lot about why unconscious bias is so hard to change, one of the reasons is that, like a muscle, the neuronal connections in your brain don't disappear instantaneously. They've been worked up over a long period of time, and so just because you become aware of them, they don't suddenly stop. The other reason why it's virtually impossible to change the wiring of those unconscious habits is because they are constantly reinforced by what we are continuing to marinate in. The brain is constantly firing for what it sees and what it hears and what it reads and what it's surrounded by. And so unless you lifted the brain out of the marinade and you put it in a different one, it would be impossible to stop that process, right? So the, the call to action really when it ultimately when it comes to unconscious bias is to 
maintain the rage <laughs> of our foremothers mm. and keep working so that your brain is not going to have to marinate in a gendered um, stew for any longer than it has to. But, you know, so social change takes time, but you're absolutely correct. It's, um, the ideas are constantly reinforced. You open the newspaper, you know, kids have gendered career expectations by the time they're three or four years old. Pink and blue starts before they're even born. Um, it's, it's very difficult. It's, it, it, it might be easier to say consciously, I don't agree with any of that stuff. I think it's silly, it's restrictive. It, it, it places both men and women in unnecessarily restrictive boxes that are not useful for either of them. Um, but it's impossible to not, to, for it not to get soaked into your unconscious brain because we are flooded by it all of the time. Mm. So yes, the marinade has a lot to do with it. Mm. Thank you. Thanks. One more question? Uh, hi, uh, first, thank you so much um, for a very engaging talk. Um, my pleasure. The psychology brain stuff is very fascinating to me. It contrasts a little bit with my background, which is in sociology. Um, yep. So there's a, <laughs> so it's nice to see some real stuff with my fit. Larry stuff. Um, <laughs> following on from the marinade comment um, and shifting it a little bit because obviously the marinade is a very sociology oriented yes. focus. Um, yeah. But also, I'm um, doing a PhD about solitude um, in the modern world, and you know you're teaching stuff about mindfulness, and mm. there's all these techniques and mm. things available to us now. Um, and we, there's a lot of commentary within academia and in popular discourse about our accelerated lives, and we're always mm. you know media saturated, and it's hard to disconnect. Um, which has provided, I guess, a in for you now because you actually have to teach us how to achieve solitude now. Do you think there is something about our hyper-connectivity and, and accelerated society that has now taken away those formerly quite accessible pockets of solitude that we would have had in day-to-day -day life? Um, and is there a way... Is, is learning a mindfulness course the only way of reclaiming the solitude that's slipping away from our hands? Fascinating PhD topic. Thanks. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know whether I have a big enough sociological perspective. Every generation complains about how life is faster and more complicated and more stressful than it ever has been. And people were saying that 50, 100 years ago too. So I, so I don't know whether there's something, something where we're, we're kind of field-bound by our own experience in that regard. But people do talk a lot in the organisational space, particularly about how... <laughs> The pace of change seems to be accelerating, that the expectations and the workloads are getting bigger, that people are under more stress, they are hyper-connected. Um, this idea of work-life balance has, is fast becoming work-life integration so that there's just no difference between the two anymore. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I certainly have a felt sense that it's worse than it used to be, but, you know, my mother would probably argue with me and say, well, you don't think I was busy and stressed out and multitasking all of the time too. It means, though, that it's extraordinarily difficult and it requires quite a lot of effort in order to inject time for thinking about thinking, yes. all of those meta things. Um, it's very difficult to inject regular time for that into your life as a, as a, as a per, any, any person. Um, but particularly in the organisational intervention space, it's extraordinarily difficult to say to senior leaders to just stop doing something for five minutes because mm. the world will end. Mm. <laughs> it's, it, it means that um, it's, it's a real challenge, but I think there's a growing sense of inevitability around the momentum in terms of gender, and diverse, gender equality and diversity and inclusion work in organisations and also a growing interest in the 
usefulness of, of mindfulness, both in terms of its psychosocial health benefits, but from my particular perspective with a cognitive science interest, in its ability to improve and enrich decision-making capabilities. Yeah, I do suspect that it is a sort of redefining of the value of solitude or mindfulness or yep. these sorts of things. Um, you know, currently our world is you're only becoming a better person if you're busy. Like, there's all these yep. things we should be doing, and if we can bring solitude into an option that is actually self-fulfilling and, and challenging in a good way, then um, that's possibly a way of doing it as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I can, I can feel a book coming on. <laughs> Is it just me? Um, look, we, uh, sadly, we are out of time, but um, would you join me in thanking Jennifer? Thank you. Thank you.